Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, that's me, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here, and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London. You just never know. This week we come to you from Aurora, Colorado, right outside of Denver at the Gaylord Rockies Resort and Convention Center. Uh, Joining me now, a repeat guest to us. Um, I don't come to Denver without talking to him. He's the Children and Family Program Manager at the Denver Museum of Science, Nature and Science. Nature and Science. I know. Or Science and Nature. You'll live with that, Either too. Either one, yeah. yeah. Brian Hostelter, how are you? I'm doing well. Good to see you. You know, I, I go back to my days as a child uh, when going to a museum was, an, was sort of an endurance because <laughs> I was told all the things I couldn't do, right. couldn't touch, yep. couldn't see, couldn't feel couldn't interact with mm-hmm. and I was looking at stuff from behind glass right right I remember my first trip to the Museum of Natural History in New York which is so amazing but I'm looking at some stuffed deer yeah you know and it's like I can't do anything with it yep. it's like it's it's tough to have a, a fond memory of that even <laughs> though the intentions were good right right right, right. How have you changed that Oh, we've made a lot of progress since then. Uh, and I don't know when that was, but we've definitely made... That um, was a long time made, ago. Made steps, it. yeah. <laughs> so um, a bunch of the galleries that we have here at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science are interactive and very hands-on, things you can touch, things you can feel. Prehistoric Journey, for instance, we have dinosaur bones that you can touch. Not just things that you can see, but there's volunteers there. They'll pull out an 80-million-year-old piece of chunk of dinosaur bone that but you can But while touch. you're holding it in your hand, they're going to explain it to you. They're going to talk about it, it yeah. It doesn't have any con- – without context, it doesn't mean anything. Right. So otherwise, it's just a rock, right, right. without knowing what it is. Um, you can actually learn what kind of bone it is, what animal it came from, where it came from on the animal, uh, when we know. Sometimes we don't, but uh, we know it's dinosaur bone, and we have a good time explaining that to people and letting them f- experience it in different ways. All right. What else can I touch? Oh, you can touch a lot of stuff. So within that gallery, or within Prehistoric Journey, obviously there's dinosaurs, there's ammonites, there's trilobites, there's lots of invertebrates and things. But beyond that, even in the human, the human experience of the, um, of the Expedition Health Gallery, you can get your own brain waves checked just to make sure they're you know, still going. You can get your heart that's rate not, checked. That's not an interactive museum. That's the Mayo Clinic. That's what are you right. talking about? Well, it's not for diagnostic purposes, strictly speaking. Yes, but, but, it could, uh, but it could ruin your day. Yeah, it could make you feel bad about it, yeah, I guess. Yeah. But uh, generally, it's good to know your life. And you get to play games. You get to play games. You get to play against someone else and see how your brain waves compare to theirs. Um, you get to... Well, that could, that could be a problem, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> depends, on the, depends on the group you're with. Exactly. Little Johnny's going home early today. <laughs> Little Johnny's obviously tired. He's yes, having some trouble. Yes, yes. Uh, but we get we do dissections. You actually get to touch um, real um, real anatomy. You get to touch things like sheep lungs and sheep hearts, depending on which really? show you catch. Oh yeah, we've got all any kinds age of requirements stuff. there. No, no, just uh, cool. Don't uh, you know follow directions? Don't grab it and run. But you know, have a good time. 
What's the biggest surprise in the museum right now? Oh, gosh. I think the biggest surprise right now, we've got some upcoming exhibits that are going to be fantastic. I want to talk about that a little yeah. bit later because you have one exhibit that's coming up that that I know blows my mind because I remember when they first did the exhibit at the Museum of, of in Montreal, uh-huh. and I went to it. It was the first time in my entire career as, as a traveler mm-hmm. that I changed my travel schedule and went back for four more days. Nice. To, just to go at that museum. That, I'll tease that when we come back. Okay, but I wanna, okay. I, but what I want to talk about is what you've got now. What we've got right now. So going on right now, we've got uh, the usual stuff. We've got the, the prehistoric journeys. We've got the space odysseys. We've got a moon rock on display. We've got... How big, uh, how big is that moon rock? You know, let's... Come on, be honest. It's not about the size of the moon rock. It's about... <laughs> Another moon rock yeah, apologist. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Came from the moon, though. I mean, hard to beat. I, I, know, I know. And you know it came from the moon. We know it came from the moon because it came home in the cargo bay of, a, um, of an actual moon landing and came back with an astronaut. Okay, so stupid question that you may not know the answer to, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Well, let's, let's find out. Where are most of the moon rocks these days? Uh, the, the, many of them are at NASA. NASA holds on to many of them. Some of them are distributed around the country. The Smithsonian Air and Space has some. We, they're everywhere. They've, they've been kind of distributed. I know a while ago there was a big deal when they would, ever, they would travel and move from place to place. I mean, let's, let's realize the fact that they landed on the moon on July of 1969. Yeah, you know, there's an I mean, anniversary that's, that's coming up. That's 50 years yeah, coming exactly. up. Exactly, yeah. I know. It's a big day. I know, but we haven't been there since. Uh, well, we've been there since, but not in a while. It's been yeah. since the 70s. Well, yeah, but we haven't been there more than 45 years. That's mm, close to true. Yeah, that's yeah. around there, yeah. That's the motto of the show, close to true. Close to true. Yeah, that's, that's what you're there. <laughs> It's my but, whole life. So, but but the bottom line is, you can go. You don't get to touch the moon rock. You don't get to touch the moon rock. But just seeing something that came from the moon is pretty fascinating. As um, long as people tell you the story. As long as you know what it is. Yeah. You know, otherwise, it just looks like a rock. Listen, I say this about the news business all the time. We mm. have too many people chasing fire trucks and not enough people explaining the fire. And speaking to Brian Hostelter from the Denver Museum of Science and Nature, or Nature and Science, he'll he'll accept either one. I will take it. Um, when we last left off, I was talking about an exhibit you have starting in just a couple of days on Leonardo da Vinci. Uh, 500 years of genius, and I could, that's true. I mean, this is many years ago. I was in Montreal, and somebody said, you know, we have an exhibit at the museum. Would you like to go see it? I said, okay, I'll go. And I walked in, and my life changed. Hmm. They, what they'd done is they'd gone to all of da Vinci's notebooks, everything he had ever written in terms of his sketches and Mm -hmm. his drawings, and based on what he drew, they built it. Mm -hmm. They built it in this museum. And you're walking around going, Forget the Mona Lisa. The Mona Lisa was like arts and crafts time. <laughs> this was unbelievable. I mean, this is a guy who, and, and, and as a result of my experience there, I mean, I, I was there for four hours, and then I had to leave, and I, and I said, I can't leave. I went back for three more days because every time I turned another corner in that museum, I was like in more awe of this guy. I mean, you know, people were always saying to you, I'm sure you had this, you know, who would you like to have at dinner one night? Mm-hmm. Everybody says Albert Einstein. Or, no, Da Vinci, that's it. And a translator. Right. I'll take that. Right, right. You're going to need that. Yeah. But here's a guy who designed the helicopter and didn't know it. Mm-hmm. Here's the guy whose architectural drawings were so phenomenal that he built he built structures and supports that are still being used today. Mm-hmm. I mean, unbelievable. Yeah, it's fantastic stuff. He he redesigned. I mean, beyond the helicopter, he w- did some of the beginning sketches around things like airplanes. He designed a parachute that. Um, would have been interesting to use, but um, what probably would have worked. He designed a scuba suit, uh, flippers, basically water skis, sub- submarines, tanks. These are all things that just came out of his mind. Yeah, his two favorite words must have been "what if," because yeah. it motivated him to do all this stuff. Yeah, he based everything on what he saw when he used the natural world to help him create amazing pieces of art. But then he started to think about, well, if I, this happens this way, what if I did this? And how about you know, what if I wa- what if I wanted to fly? How would I do it like a bird? And so he studied birds, which yeah. is, you know, kind of revolutionary if you think about it. He drew yes, but when, he, when he studied the birds, he noticed the airlift over the curvature of the wings, mm-hmm. of the bird's wings, and that, that gave him the idea. Yeah, he noticed how they, how they interacted and how they feathered at the end, for lack of a better term, um, and designed a, a hang glider that basically went along with those, those rules and principles. What's interesting about this is, you know, what's America's favorite destination overseas? It still is France. Mm-hmm. And my argument has always been, you're a bunch of failed art history majors. <laughs> you study the painting in school, and you figure, I better go over and see it at least once. Right. So you go over, you stand in line for 10 hours at the Louvre, and you walk out an hour later, go. It's so small. Right. I mean, the the, the the Mona Lisa. I'm not telling people not to go see it, but just I want to manage expectations yeah. here. It's a pretty small piece of art. Mm-hmm. Having seen this exhibit in Montreal, and now looking forward to your exhibit here, yep. which I think is March one coming up. Yep. Yep. Coming up. I mean, 
It's night and day. It's amazing. The we actually have we've blown up the Mona Lisa, so we do have a. Well, pic- yeah, that's easy to <laughs> yeah, do. Yeah, it's easy. <laughs> well, yeah, pictures of the Mona Lisa taken in um, you know thirteen different types of light between you know the X-rays and the and just to see the history of the painting. Um, it was never actually completed. He was never happy with it, um, but you know it worked out pretty well for him long term. I mean, how many thousands of hours have been spent by art historians trying to, to you know trying to mm. decipher the smile? Right, um, a lot, a yeah. lot. I, I don't even know how many. And how many versions of that smile did Leonardo make? Because it, just looking at it, you can pretty easily determine there's at least four paintings there. He's painted over and over and over and erased and moved. And well, well, she was moody. She was moody. She had a lot going on. She was, and that's why people like her so much. They don't know what she's thinking. Maybe because Leonardo might not have. Who knows? But one of the things that he designed mm-hmm. was a catapult. Yeah, he designed a, um, uh, some modifications to a catapult. So catapult, he didn't invent it, but he definitely right. made it better. He used uh, almost like a crossbow type of methodology of a double leaf spring to hold energy and then, you know, fire projectiles you got to wonder why did this guy come up with these things why did he decide that that the art of war was something he would focus on really that's just a product of his time well necessity being the mother of invention there Mm -hmm. was a demand for it yeah he had to get paid so exactly so when i come to this exhibit Mm -hmm. march one yep what do i get to touch you get to touch a bunch of stuff actually there are a number of things that are included in the exhibition to begin with that you get to touch and move and turn and interact with but we've added this ability to, to fire your own catapult. So you get to you get to wait, load wait, wait, and wait, fire. Wait, uh, wait a second. Oh, it's great. I want to know something. Yeah. Do I have the option of, pe- of determining who I put on the catapult? You know, I can look the other way as much as I want, and you can see what you can do. I, I, Is there a weight limit? <laughs> you know, there may be, unfortunately. So um, if you need to fire the catapult at someone, you know, well, no. technically you can't do that either. No, no. But we have invented this, uh, this cool catapult uh, thing that you get to do with the exhibit. We also are letting people... People try their hand at forced perspective, which is a, an art thing that Da Vinci did, where you could draw something in 3D using a you know, using a 2D surface, like a pane of glass. You look through it with one eye, and you can draw exactly what you see. When you open your eyes, you have a 3D uh, image of what you were what you were drawing. So we've added that. Every pun intended, eye opening. It is eye opening. Yes, it's one eye opening actually. <laughs> We've also added, um, we've the ability to build your own ladder, what um, uh, Leonardo called an emergency ladder, hold, held together with nothing but its own weight, which is a, just a stroke of genius. He took sticks and turned it into a, a self-supporting ladder. It probably didn't take him that long. Either. And a concept cool. that still works today. It does. Yeah, we can still do it, and you can do it in the gallery, which you want. Should there be a rapid change in cabin pressure, oxygen masks will automatically drop from the compartment above your seat, free of charge. And to start the flow of oxygen, pay your flight attendant $75.63. Joining me now is the mayor of Aurora, uh, Bob Laguerre. How are you, sir? Very good. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, so this is a big deal, isn't it? It's a very big deal. It's, uh, it's the type of project we've been looking for here in the city of Aurora for 30 to 40 years. And it's finally landed and did the ribbon cutting. Did it take the airport being where it is, the new airport, to have this happen? I think it's absolutely uh, here because of the Denver International Airport, which is now over 25 years old. You know, you're making me feel so old because I was here when, when you had the mayor of Denver, I think, uh, Wellington Webb. He and I were walking along unfinished runways when the runways were sinking and the baggage carousels were eating the bags, and DIA stood for doesn't include airplanes. <laughs> Those that were was the early 25 days. 25 years ago, and I was yes. doing a piece on the Today Show with him. I'll never forget him. He was very, very tall and wore sneakers everywhere, and, yes. and there we were on the runways. And now it's 25 years old, and they got their act together. The bags are not being eaten anymore, and uh, it's an all-weather airport. Yeah, they actually do a very good job there, and uh, the nature of the airport is a little different than what the planners thought, but uh, it really it's the reason we have this Gaylord Hotel here right at their southern border. Because it's easy in, easy out. That is correct. For people who don't know where we are right now, they may know Denver, of course, and they've been to Denver. They passed through Aurora on the way to Denver, but tell me about Aurora. Well, Aurora is the second largest city in the Denver metro area and the third largest city in the state of Colorado. We're 375,000 population, 160 square miles. About 50% of that is built out. The rest is undeveloped. And this uh, area surrounding the Gaylord is about 50% of our uh, open area for development. Would it be safe to say that Aurora was traditionally a bedroom community for Denver? 
that is correct, and we continually work on bringing uh, corporate uh, and industrial and uh, higher paid uh, jobs here, and that's part of uh, the vision we have for this area surrounding the Gaylord. What's the biggest surprise for people who've not been to Aurora before when they first see it? I think the biggest surprise is that uh, the size of our city and the diversity of our city and the uh, extent of parks and recreation facilities that we have here. Uh, a lot of times uh, people don't know of the suburbs uh, when you have a region. Uh, I believe that someday we'll be known as the Aurora Denver area. <laughs> Being the promoter that you are. Yes. <laughs> and what's the biggest drawback? Uh, the biggest drawback is uh, probably getting the attention of the national business uh, circuits and uh, uh, people that would look at this area and realize all of the amenities we have to offer here. A full service city right directly south of the Denver International Airport with a lot of growth potential. Well, you know, I was just talking to the hotel folks here and they tell me that even though this hotel just opened in the soft opening two months ago and is having the grand opening a week from today, their meetings business is already booked completely full through 2021. Yeah, they have uh, they've have uh, 1.1 million rooms were booked before we ever cut the ribbon. and uh, That's amazing. Yeah, it, it really is. Is, that, is there that kind of demand? Um, everything we've heard about the uh, potential for this uh, hotel and, and conference area and the area surrounding is exactly that, that the, uh, the Gaylord Circuit will bring that here. Now, you became mayor just a little bit less than a year ago. Yes. Uh, before that, you were a realtor. Yes, I was a uh, commercial real estate broker. And, so uh, you know this, you know this, know this better than anything. Yeah. Very well. And, uh, and, and so I watched it both as from the private sector and also as a, uh, an elected city council member at large for 16 years prior to becoming mayor. Anytime you open up a hotel that's this big, that has this many employees, one of the most important things you have to consider, of course, is affordable employee housing. Have they done that? Yes, we're, we're actually working on an affordable housing policy. A, a situation we have here in the metro area is that housing values have risen far faster than uh, wages. And that's part of the reason is that this is such a popular area to live. We've had a huge influx of new occupants, but not enough homes built. So how do you keep people on their job if they can't afford to get to the job? Well, it's, uh, there are still affordable places to live. There's apartments, uh, there's uh, smaller homes, and uh, actually this Gaylord Rockies Hotel is closest to the most affordable houses in the region, which is north and south and southeast of the Gaylord Hotel. And of course, looking at the map and looking at Aurora as a hub, if you will, within what, two hours of where we are right now, you're skiing. That's correct. You can jump on uh, Interstate 70 and head up to the mountains, or if you have lots of money in your pocket, you can jump on an airplane and be there in 30 or 40 minutes. You know what? Given the choice, I will drive every time because the, the, the flights between Denver and Aspen for a second, you know, the, getting into those airports, they're not always open, and it, it's a mess. Uh, I, I'd much rather drive. Now, you, you may need trains sometimes, uh, depending on whether, whether I-70 is being friendly or not, right? That's correct, and uh, those airplane rides can be a little bumpy sometimes. No, so. no, no, all the time. <laughs> all the time. Even in clear weather, you are, you're holding, I can tell you, the la I'm not making this up, Mr. Mayor, the last four times I've flown into Aspen, and that was in June, not in the middle of the ski season, the person sitting next to me who I didn't know was holding my hand <laughs> yeah. because we were bumping and bumping and bumping. But they're good pilots. Yeah. It's like landing in a salad bowl. I mean, it really is. Yeah, it is a, it is a precarious uh, route to, the, to there. I know. But the good news is you're here. Yes. And the, so one other thing about the city of Aurora that's very unique, we've got uh, uh, 375,000 population, as I said, and 20% of those 75,000 are foreign-born. So very diverse city. We've got uh, uh, 200 restaurants. Many of those are ethnic home, home restaurants. And uh, we also have medical tourism here, which maybe is a topic for another day. If you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. I am a passenger. Uh, joining me now, a, a pal of ours, we, we talked to when we were here last year in Denver, 
Uh, he's the executive director of the Denver Center for the Performing Arts. John Eckberg, how are you, John? It's great to see you again, Peter. Thanks. Now, I'm just going to say one word to you. You ready? Hamilton. Yeah. <laughs> Why am I not surprised? <laughs> right? Sold out? Crazed? Yeah. It was uh, fantastic. We had our first Denver engagement last March, April for five weeks. And I've never SRO, seen anything right? like it. Yeah. It was incredible on every level. And that's the, and that's the touring cast. That is. Uh, that was the first national touring company, I believe, at the time. That was uh, a year ago. There were, I believe, three companies in existence of Hamilton across the world, and now there are six. Wow. Yeah, New York, Chicago. Puerto Rico. <laughs> well, yes. That, the uh, special performance. That company moved to, they're in San Francisco right now. Yeah. And there for an extended visit. And then, of course, Dear Evan Hansen. Yeah, we had the wonderful opportunity well, the, the, to the, launch the, the national tour. The songbook from that musical is great. Fantastic, yeah. right? Just yeah. just great songs. And uh, we were so pleased to launch the national tour this last fall. Now, there's one thing to say that the Denver Center for the Performing Arts launches a national tour it's another thing to say that you actually launch a play itself, mm -hmm. right? I mean, you can break it here. Yeah, we have a uh, producing wing, uh, our theater company, that uh, focuses a lot on world premieres, uh, mainly plays. And in fact, there are two up on our stages right now, a play entitled uh, The Whistleblower and another entitled Last Night and the Night Before. That sounds like my life story. <laughs> <laughs> we won't go there. Um, but... Are you able now, because of your track record, to attract the talent, to attract the artists, to attract the performers that can actually launch a, 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 a play that can then go on tour? Yeah, Denver's got a really great rep has developed a really great reputation. It's a great city to be in. We have wonderful resources at the Denver Performing Arts Complex, which is four square blocks, eight different theaters, a really vibrant uh, group of technicians who we build you know sets on site all that sort of stuff so we you have do, a lot you, of resources. do your own work we do our own work down there yeah quite okay. a bit of it so i remember a very famous quote which i had to live with when i was based in los angeles for newsweek about you know there being no culture west of the hudson river right. um obviously i disputed that and you do as well uh but the other question that came with that was like who's going right how have the demographics changed as to actually who's attending your performances? Sure. Well, Denver, as I'm sure you're very aware, is growing incredibly rapidly. Uh, in the Really in the last five or so years, it's a young demographic that's moved in. It's really uh, much more diverse, perhaps, than historically. So that's an audience we obviously try to tap into. I mean, downtown Denver has become so vibrant. Oh, I know. And so amazing. And we really have... Uh, as I tend to say, we used to be sort of uh, on the edges, the fringes of downtown, and you'd have to sort of go several blocks to find, you know, decent restaurants and all that sort of stuff. Now, now we're are. really in the heart of it. And when you think about the, the, the location of where we are right now, the, the, the Gaylord in Aurora, you could actually do a road show here. Uh, where? Out at the Gaylord? Yeah. You know, this is my first time here, Peter, so I haven't taken a look around this yet. This is a massive complex yeah. here. I mean, you could actually take one of your shows and do a, do a road show within your own city. Got it. In, in internal community tour, perhaps, <laughs> right? Why not? Yeah. What's the most surprising performance you've had since the last time I talked to you? The most surprising? That's a wonderful question. Um, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily qualify it as a surprise, but a, a tour that we brought in this last fall, uh, the uh, musical Come From Away, oh, if you're aware of it. Not only am I aware of it, yeah, I covered I that story. So. I was oh, in Gander. Oh, you were? Oh, I was. Fantastic. And I'm telling you, uh, this is a show, and, and I, I won't project this. I'm just going to guess it, because I saw it in New York. At the end of the show, I'm standing on my chair. Yeah. I'm standing, we're all yelling and screaming, standing on our chair. I, 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 it's one of the few shows I've seen twice, mm -hmm. uh, just because I related to it so much, because that was a story for people who don't know. On 9-11, when they ordered all the planes on the ground, you had so many planes coming to the United States from Europe, the only place they could put them was on the runway in Gander, Newfoundland. Correct an airport that maybe had two flights a day, and by the end of that day had 34 747s, DC-10s, and wide bodies, nose to nose, and the total number of people on those planes, on the ground there, and they were going to be grounded for five days at least, was three times more than the population of Gander. And right. it's what the people of Gander did. The charge for looking at this pamphlet is $3. <laughs> 
the charge for looking at this pamphlet and putting it back quickly is four dollars. <laughs> Joining me now, the director of special events here at the Gaylord Rockies, Donovan Will. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me today. I mean, how big is this place, really? Really, it's big. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it's hard to put a, a number on everything, but we have over 5,000 square feet of convention space, plus the hotel, plus our exterior. So we're talking multiple, multiple acres of property that we get to play with here. People want to come and play. Absolutely. And that's part of my job is to let them come and play here. I mean, yes, you have a tennis court. Yes, you have a spa. I mean, you have the things that I expect, mm -hmm. right? What do you have that I don't expect? You know, it's funny. Um, one thing that a lot of people don't realize about Gaylord is that I consider us a mini theme park that has hotels around us. So that's part of my job with special events entertainment is to bring those theme park experiences here. Uh, one of the biggest things we do every year is called ICE, uh, which happens over the Christmas holidays. And then we also do our Summerfest activities over the summer. Okay, what's, what's ICE? Absolutely. So ICE is, we bring artisans in from Harbin, China, where they basically conceived this ice and snow carving festival. It's the world-renowned festival out there. They come over and they bring their talents here and we build a tent for them to keep at nine degrees Fahrenheit and we carve life-size and larger ice sculptures that are around an IP. So for example, this year at the Gaylord Palms, uh, we did our brand new show out there with a great IP and over year over year, we have different IPs that move through. So IP? I, yep, intelle intellectual property. Thank you. So, yep, absolutely. So we do themes like Rudolph, we do themes like the Grinch, we do themes. All in ice. All in ice, all in color, clear ice. Everything and how long do they stay up? We keep it up for about 52 days. Wow, mm -hmm. so much for global warming. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why we have a great system in our tent to keep it cold enough. What's the most unusual one they've done? You know, it depends. I personally thought some of the unusual ones we did were back in 2011 and 2012 when we were partners with Warner Brothers and we did the Shrek and Mary Madagascar. Wow, Shrek and ice. Yes, it was, it was an interesting- Was he green? He he was very green, just like you would see him in the movie. It's not just like the crystal, the, the, the crystal color ice. It's you actually color it. It isn't. We absolutely do. We use uh, food coloring uh, in the pre-prep pre process to be able to create these ice sculptures that really come to life. All right. So that's one of your big events. Mm -hmm. What's another one? Another one is Summerfest, which um, is you know I kind of describe it as. A staycation on steroids. When you go to a hotel, you expect us to have what you said, a pool, some tennis courts, you know, maybe a little bit of this. But we kind of take that to another level. And like I said, we bring that theme park quality entertainment for you here at the hotel. Um, this year, we've got some really fun things planned, um, including changing our mini golf course into something unimaginable. Of course, DJs out of the pool, movies at the pool, you know, things like escape rooms, mazes, just everything for anybody in the family to get out here and enjoy. Escape rooms? Mm -hmm. Explain, please. So I don't know if uh, you're familiar, but we have these escape rooms that have kind of popped up over the years that basically pit teams against teams to try and escape out of a room. So how do we theme that out and make that fun for the hotel guests here? And you call that guest check-in, but they can't check out? Exactly. So <laughs> Hopefully, uh, hopefully they do get a do get a check out of the room and find their way out as a team. Uh, but we have at Gaylord, we've come up with a new idea that is really not known around the world on the escape room, and that is putting a live actor in that escape room. That gives you more opportunities and more fun twists and turns to get you out of the room. Wow. So. Now, I'm a big fan of, of uh, volunteer opportunities when you can do them. Absolutely. You've been very much involved in that. Um, I do. Uh, one of the biggest people I volunteer with is Ignite Adaptive Sports uh, here locally in Colorado at Eldora Ski Resort. And we teach anybody with any kind of physical or mental um, not even a disability, but capability uh, to ski. You know, you've seen people, if you ski out there on the sit skis, um, we teach them. Everybody should have the opportunity to get out and do what they love, uh, no matter what your quote-unquote limitations on life are. And do you get involved with some of the other hotel employees doing? Um, you know what? I've yet to get anybody to volunteer this season. The hotel's newly opened in December, but I have a list of people that I've been talking to that are super list. You're interested. You're in going to command so, them to do it. We, well, uh, command, I don't know. We're, we're a great volunteer organization. Right. Uh, everybody in the organization volunteers, bar our CEO, and uh, it, it's just a great community and family up there. And how many people have you been able to train? Uh, you know, we we do hundreds and hundreds of skiers every single year. So we're and the ski resorts cooperate. Yep, the ski resort Eldora is a great partner of us. Um, but we get up there and we teach them, and we anybody wants to come up and join us. How can somebody get involved in that? Um, IgniteAdaptiveSports.org is our website, 
and we're always looking for volunteers. Uh, we're always looking for skiers, too, so don't be afraid to come out and ski. And by the way, for those people who aren't physically challenged, if you're looking for inspiration, this is it. Because if you don't think you can do it, take a look at the people who are doing it that you guys are working with. It's, it's truly amazing. It really is. It, it's, you know, it's the highlight of my day when I get to meet somebody who is either coming out for the first time, maybe they're working through new blindness or new loss of vision, and they get to get on a snowboard or skis and ski down the hill the first time. It's amazing. Riding along in my automobile My baby beside me at the wheel Cruising and playing the radio With no particular place to go Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. Where's the first place that I go for guidance? It's not necessarily the Chamber of Commerce. It's not the Convention and Visitors Bureau. And it's definitely not you know, going to a brochure that's on the rack of the hotel concierge. I go to the local fire station, and I'll tell you why. Think about it. They've been in everybody's hotel. They've been in everybody's house. They've been in everybody's restaurant. They know where to go. They know where not to go. And yes, they know where to eat. I can tell you this because as many of you know who listen to the show regularly, I'm also a fireman based in New York. So joining me now, Captain Pixley yes, from the Denver Fire Department. How are you, sir? I'm very fine think i'm excited to be here i'm happy to have you here you know we take fire safety at least i do as a traveler very seriously when i go to a hotel i, I mean i tend to do this all the time i try not to stay above the sixth floor i don't stay on the first floor so anywhere between two and six i always check to see what the hotel has done to state a fire code we, we, you know, we saw that terrible fire in london and the towers there and in india and just in india this morning yeah just this morning and and you know two things always come across and you, you'd think in the year 20,000 2019 people would figure this out either exit doors are locked or the or the hotels aren't up to code or, or properly sprinkled and in the hotel in the Grenville Towers fire in, in in London there are no sprinklers in in public rooms there are no sprinklers in guest rooms anybody above the sixth floor was toast fire department couldn't help them right so I must say this is a brand new hotel I took particular care to, to walk around my room here and I must tell you they sprinkled they I counted five sprinklers in my bedroom four in the bedroom one in the bathroom I've, I counted heat sensors and smoke detectors, and even more important for some people, audio and visual alarms on the fire detectors, so that if you have a sight impairment, you can hear it, and if you have a hearing impairment, you can see it with a strobe. That's pretty good. You know, we're really lucky because the International Fire Code has looked out for everybody's well-being. It's neat to see how we have progressed since the time that you and I were young men into the, the time that we are now, that we can actually incorporate a number of different variables to allow for people to be notified when there's fires. Yeah, because a response time on your case is, is crucial, but getting out on our case is crucial. Exactly. And we have uh, an opportunity to get people out safely, unlike maybe some third world countries or some other places throughout the world that don't have the same type of uh, fire code that we have, that the uh, hyper-aggressive approach. So I we appreciate the fact that there are people that look out for not staying over the sixth floor but in the city and county of Denver and in a large part of the United States that's really not an issue because they have fire safe ways for people to be able to exit from the building should there be an issue as long as you can alert them as long as you can alert them yes and uh, and I always tell people I, I give them the scenario you're going to know the answer to this so don't jump in okay <laughs> but you know you're sleeping in your hotel room it's two o'clock in the morning and the fire alarm goes off what's the first thing you do and most people get it wrong they always get it wrong. They'll, well, I stand up. And I go, no, you roll, you roll off the bed. You roll to the carpet, and then you crawl to the door. Because so many people don't get killed by the fire. They get put, killed by the toxic smoke. Yeah, and that was um, evident back in Las Vegas two or three decades ago. I covered that fire uh, at the MGM. Yes, sir. And uh, um, They never have a chance. They never had a chance. You know, what we do now, when we teach these kids in, at the very beginning of their impressionable period in elementary school and, and in their uh, kindergarten years, we teach them to stay low below the smoke. And if we can start to change this, this culture of people understanding that when there is smoke, they don't need to stand up and smell it or try to figure out how bad it is. We want them to get low and to crawl out. And then um, some of these very simple principles that we teach these young kids and then they can teach their parents. So it has a secondary effect as well. We're talking to Captain Greg Pixley from the Denver Fire Department. 
Now, let's get beyond just urban areas here. We're seeing this across the United States. We're seeing it in, in all over the world, whether it's Australia, France, Greece, the spread of uncontrollable wildfires. Yes. We, we saw a fire earlier this year in California, and as a fireman, it scared me so much because when you have a fire that's moving at between one and a half and two miles per hour, you, as a firefighter, you can't get ahead of it. I mean, it's, no, it's, and if there's no way for people to get out, yeah. there are one or two roads into these very rural areas that are quite common in the mountains, and people want to get away. They want to have that, that luxury of being able to get with the, uh, the trees and the fresh air, but um, we have to be smarter about ways to evacuate people out of these, these very dangerous situations. Now, your coverage area in Denver goes beyond the city, I'm sure. We have a wildland firefighting team as well. We have properties up in the mountains that uh, are Denver properties. So we do have the capability to be able to assist our, our colleagues in the National Forestry Service or anywhere throughout the United States to fight and combat these very dangerous wildfires. Now, we're in the Mile High City. So I have to ask a stupid question, which is why I failed science in high school. <laughs> what, what impact does the altitude here have on your ability to fight fires? Well, we become acclimated. So uh, unlike people that might be coming from Florida or California, the longer you stay here, the better apt you are to be able to deal with the situation and the altitude. But it takes a period of time, and firefighters typically are pretty well fit. So we work out pretty, show pretty off. hard. Well, we show off. you know, you have to be, and we try to eat healthy. It's not like it used to be. So we really focus on trying to maintain that level of competency so that if we are deployed up into maybe the 8,000, 9,000 foot um, elevations, we're going to be able to to be able to work. But it's a constant effort. It's not just something that we decide to do today. Well, we should probably get fit for tomorrow. No, we work on it every day. And of course, firefighting or not, when you're at this altitude, the key, the key word is hydration. Yes, People sir. don't realize this. You know, they'll come to Denver for the first time and Next thing you know, you have a lot of people who faint or you have a lot of people who just get tired very quickly because they haven't realized the effect that altitude has on your body and, and the need for hydration. That's correct. And we, we do recommend that when people come, not only is the sun brighter here a little bit more than maybe it is on the lowlands or maybe in the Midwest, but we, uh, we do preach that you need to stay hydrated and uh, that will help reduce the effects of that, that change in altitude. And of course... I tell this to people when they're flying on an airplane or they're at the 5,000-foot level here in, in Denver. One drink of alcohol at that altitude is worth about one and a half to two on the ground. So you're, you're going to get inebriated a whole lot faster. <laughs> there is a, a degree of truth to that for sure. Are you speaking from personal experience? Uh, well, I would like to say <laughs> that uh, we do ask people to maintain the hydration, we'll just say, with water. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you qualified that. Hello and welcome to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants. Please look at one now. Every time I come to Denver, and I, I make this a point, I visit the home of my next guest. It is an amazing building, amazing design building, and, and they have a they have a kick-ass gift shop too, but we can't go there. I mean, that that's just too expensive for me. But they always have some of the most amazing exhibits, and every time we're broadcasting from Denver, we talk about that because it's usually interactive, it's easy, it's accessible, and guess what? You actually learn something. Joining me now, the chief curator and curator of European art, I, hate, I have to say this, before 1900... <laughs> <laughs> Angelica Daniel, how are you? I'm very well. Thank you for having me. So 1901, we're cut off. We can't go there. Yes, no. You add one year, and, and it's like the black hole, right? <laughs> so, so tell me. I mean, every museum wants to be first, uh, uh, you know, first on its block. They always want to have the best exhibits, the, the, the cutting-edge stuff. But how would you describe just the, the culture of the Denver Art Museum as opposed to, let's say, you know, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York? Because you're not the biggest guy on the block, but you're one of the newest. Well, yeah, and we serve a large community. 
community. You know, we are the largest museum uh, between Chicago and the West Coast. So, and we are an encyclopedic museum. So we feel the responsibility of not just presenting one type of exhibition or one culture, but really try to address the interest of a wide variety of uh, audiences uh, that have different interests. Um, and so we try to reflect that in our programming and, and through our permanent collection and acquisitions. And at any given time, you're not just doing one exhibit. You're doing like four or five. Oh, yes. That's just a regular day. <laughs> yeah, we, you know, in order to address that variety, we, we really strive to have at the same time um, displays, exhibition, uh, permanent collection displays that are varied. And, and if you take right now, this is a good example, um, we have a fashion exhibition, Dior from Paris to the World, but you also can see an exhibition of Jordan Castile, um, a very exciting emerging artist, uh, which actually was, who was born in Denver, but is active in Harlem, New York, but also Stampede um, Animals in Art uh, in our permanent galleries in the Hamilton And you call building. it Stampede? We call it Stampede. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of looking at animals in art, uh, both uh, um, symbolically and, and figuratively. Now, of course, Colorado is certainly one of the capitals of Western art. True. You know, the, the, you know everything, you know, the old Remingtons and everybody on their horses. You have that too. We do. And in fact, uh, um, we are right now working at renovating and revitalizing really our um, uh, Martin, soon to be called Martin Building, uh, was designed by Gioponti. And there, the permanent uh, galleries will uh, be redisplayed and sort of uh, reconceived. And the Western American Art Collection will um, have more space on the seventh floor, for instance. And yet, if I were to describe the Denver Art Museum, it would not be just about Western art. It would be not just be about art before 1900. It would it could be modern. It could, it, it's everything. Yes, it's different culture, different time period. Um, um, European American art uh, is my department before 1900, but as you said, modern contemporary, but also photography, fashion and textile. Uh, we're very active. We have one of the best collection of uh, uh, Latin American and ancient American art in the country. So we really, if you come to Denver Art Museum, I would say I, I, I would be uh, uh, testing whether you can find something you're um, you're interested in, and I bet you can find it. And because it's a test, I will fail the test. But, <laughs> but if it wasn't a test, I would just be surprised because I'm not. I may be coming to see one exhibit, mm -hmm. but then I discover another. And that's the the the, the actually wonderful thing that um, that happens at the museum is that you you think you're interested in just one thing, and you come and you stumble across something exciting that you never thought you may like. That happened to me last year exactly. with with Hollywood fashion. Yeah. Right. With Jim Howard. With Jim Howard. Yeah. What an and I had him on the show. What an interesting man. I mean, and he, all of his drawings. Absolutely. Phenomenal. Which, and now actually they've been gifted to the Denver Museum. Yeah. So I know that you're the chief curator of art before 1900. Yeah. <laughs> but what's the most surprising thing to you about your own museum? Oh, wow. This is an interesting question. I, I think the excitement around. Uh, we, at the Denver Museum, we believe art is relevant. It's important to everybody's life. It's, it's an in integral component. And uh, I think the excitement when you enter the museum, even for somebody that works there, like myself, seeing the variety of art, uh, the, the different interests that we can spark and that we can address, uh, it's a privilege. And it's wonderful to see the visitors so engaged uh, and so excited when they come to the museum. But I want you to take your curator hat off and just okay. put your museum visitor hat on. Mm-hmm. In all the time you've been there, what's been the exhibit that surprised you the most? Well, it can, can it be one that I made, <laughs> that I curated? This self-serving moment has been brought to you. <laughs> sure, go right ahead. Well, you know, I'm it I come from Italy, and uh, um, 15 years ago I came to Denver Art Museum, and uh, I have to thank the museum for allowing me to highlight uh, the art of Italy. So most recently, Glory of Venice. It's an exhibition of Venetian Renaissance um, that we organize at the museum, and uh, um, that excited me the most because it connected a city like Venice to Denver, and, and it was wonderfully received and, and how many yeah. Caravaggios uh, no, not none, too many because it was it was a little more to the to the east of Venice okay fine because <laughs> this I mean for me I discover paintings about Venice and artwork about Venice in strange places mm -hmm. they operate they show up everywhere now I know Italians are everywhere <laughs> <laughs> the, the funny story about Caravaggio actually happened in Malta mm. he murdered somebody yep and he was escaping and he shows up in Malta and, and makes a deal with the Knights of Malta saying, if you don't turn me in, I'll paint for you. And they said, okay. So he painted. And his painting still hangs in the St. John's Co-Cathedral in Malta. That's right. And you know what happened after yeah. he finished the painting? Well, he eventually got murdered on the beach. Right? No kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, yeah, you got to appreciate the resourcefulness. Great artist and uh, a good entrepreneur of his own life. That's right. Fear 
motivating art. Yes. <laughs> so, of all the paintings and the artwork that I've seen of Venice, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, so much of it looks the same to me. Mm -hmm. When I because it's the same, it's the it's the same view of the canal or the same buildings. Oh, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, Monet, for example, mm -hmm. Monet lived in room three hundred six of the Europa Regina Hotel mm -hmm. and painted from that room. That's right. And I would look out that I would I went to that room. I stayed in that room, and I looked out the window, and what I saw was what he painted. Nothing had changed, and uh -huh. we found that painting in a museum in Albany, New York. Oh yeah. Yep, and we we just we actually did a, a photo dissolve of my view from the window to that painting. And that's when it all became relevant to me. And by the way, if you want to see more of Monet's Venetian views, you come to us in the fall of this year because we are going to show some wonderful views of Venice that were done in 1908 by Claude Monet. Probably from that room. Most likely, yeah. Oh, and, be, and also view from Bordighera because he also visited uh, um, the Italian Riviera in 1904. See, in, yeah, sorry, in 1884. See, to me... It's, I'm, I'm a big process guy. Mm -hmm. I believe if you can appreciate the process, that's when you value the product. So to find out how he painted it and the story behind the painting, as opposed to just, isn't this a nice piece of art, is the, is the difference for me. What excites us too, that's actually the creative process. It's something that um, at the museum we explored in past exhibition with uh, Degas, with Van Gogh. I went to uh, the Degas we'll ex exhibition oh, that last year. Yeah. Yeah. And we, but we really are interested in the creative process because, like you said, we agree that that is a great way into the art of a particular artist, of a painter or sculptor, uh, photographer, um, you name it. Um, so it would, we really try to explore that as much as possible, and we'll do that, too, in our um, Monet exhibition this year. And the Venice exhibition? The Glory of Venice, we did that, too. It was more of an assemblage of artists. It was a group of artists, Bellini, Titian, and so this was the Renaissance. But, uh, but it's something, obviously, that fascinates um, us in looking at artists in every age. Where are the wagons? The wagon is too slow. Can't you ride? It's not that he can't ride. How is it you put it home? They're dangerous at both ends and crafty in the middle. Why would I want anything with a mind of its own bobbing about between my legs? At every show, I always like to bring on the chef because every chef has their own challenges, their own things they've got to overcome to be able to deliver a consistency and a quality of service that makes people want to come back, not just stay the first time. My next guest uh, has that challenge. He's the executive chef here at the at the Gaylord Rockies, Fabian Ludwig. Welcome. But your history is, I mean, you, you started back in Germany. Correct. 30 years ago, mm -hmm. washing dishes. Yes. Yeah, of I course. figured. Yeah, of course. You graduated through all the Ritz-Carlton's, and then, most recently, you were at the Marriott Marquis in New York, which, by the way, every time I go there, I get lost. Yeah, yes. right? it's Times uh, Square, yeah. I, no, I don't get lost at Times Square. I get lost at the Marriott Marquis. <laughs> okay. How many rooms at that hotel? 3,000? 2,000 rooms. 2,000, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. yeah. The two big hotels in New York are that one and the Hilton. Correct. I mean, huge, right? Mm-hmm. And the Hilton recently announced they were getting rid of room service at, at, the, at the Hilton on, in New York. You yes. still have it. We do have room service. We switched to a, a concept that's called Fresh Bites that Marriott rolled out in 180 different properties across the country already. Very successful. So it's more like something you, because we saw a big decline in people ordering the room service late night. So we and you had to, to keep the kitchen open for all that. Correct. And, and we wanted to have something. Well, the kitchen is open. We have a kitchen existing still in the hotels, but the food is much more uh, convenient, something you would pick up potentially going next outside the hotel and picking up a pizza or something a burger right. from so basically it's the kiss principle keep it simple exactly keep it simple make it fast and convenient for people the travelers are changing these days uh, the way their needs are so we want but here at this hotel how many restaurants we have nine restaurants nine restaurants where you can actually get food and beverage right um, and you're in charge of all of them Correct. So your purchasing day is crazy because you've got to supply all those restaurants and make sure you can source everything. Correct. And that was at the beginning when we thought of menus and menu design and what we want to offer in that market. It was a challenge because we wanted to work with local purveyors and, and cheese makers and bread makers and just showcase that local product. And well, uh, here in Colorado, you have a lot of great local product. Correct. Absolutely. I mean, you've got great cheese in Colorado. People Absolutely. don't know that. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. I mean, with all due respect to my favorite state of mm -hmm. Wisconsin, you do have great cheese makers here in Colorado. Absolutely. Our, big, our, our largest challenge was um, to make sure that they have the volume we need to feed everybody in the social. All right, let's talk about that. Yeah. In a given day, mm -hmm. right, how many meals are you actually delivering? That's a question I can't answer on the top of my head, but it's, it's because it's in we the also thousands. have in thousands and thousands because we are a conventional hotel, so uh, you can't forget about the half a million square feet of banquet space we also have available. You're sitting in one of the banquet rooms we have. There's 80 of them. and um, 80 separate banquet rooms. Correct. And then so you have, could actually 
actually have 80 separate functions. Absolutely, at the same time. And then we also have at the same time our Aurora Ballroom at 60,000 square feet of banquet space. Okay, can I ask a really stupid question? Mm -hmm, Here it comes. Please. The biggest crunch time you must have is breakfast. Not really. Really? No. It's it's really the, um, the biggest crunch time is when we... We need to foresee sports events in the sports bars in the restaurants. Yeah, but I'm not the, talking about the Super Bowl. I'm yeah. talking about on a given day. Your big push is has got to be breakfast to get people in and out. Absolutely, people want to leave. People they want it right away. Absolutely, and we have obviously the marketplace. We have Coco Bean. People can just grab something really quick and move on. And that's the change in the business travel in today's age that they are changing from somebody who just sits down and has a breakfast for an hour just wants to have grabbed something quick. Have you ever figured out in a given day how many pounds of butter, how many pounds of beef? I mean, it's got to be outrageous. What we like to do is to make sure that the product is not around for too long. So in other words, like we just don't even store a product for a long period of time. It comes in, it gets produced, it gets eaten, and we're done. So not, we're, we're not dealing with huge, massive freezers here? No. We have actually a small, small, small freezer compared to the size of this hotel because we want to have the product come in, get produced, like I said, consumed, and then we move on. We order again. So what's your biggest challenge then? Well, our just challenge is potentially to foresee the taste of, of diners coming to the hotel. and, and What do they really want? Correct. And that we have obviously... Because you mentioned, you mentioned mm -hmm. menu design. Correct. And I'm not talking about the physical menu design of where you place the items mm -hmm. on the menu. It's basically how you create the menu. Exactly. Yeah, are people going to go and for lunch, for example? Our lunch menus in the restaurants need to be customized to what potentially people want to eat in that. And how do you know that, though? Um, experience and we get together as a team especially for forecasting for the groups we have coming into the hotel there are maybe there are potentially 80% female and we need to customize the menus to make sure that we, we go down that direction we are more healthy more not that men don't eat healthy food but you know we, we want to make sure we are ready for them You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. Hey, Prime members, Peter Greenberg here. You can listen to Ion Travel ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. And you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. And before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News Business Analyst, Certified Financial Planner, and host of the Money Watch Podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.